So we are in part two of a new series that we're calling Grace Period. Grace Period. And as I mentioned last Sunday, um, we're not really talking about a period of time that we get to experience grace after which uh, we don't get grace anymore. We're talking about the idea of grace, period. Like the way God pours his love out to us is through grace, period. We can't earn it. We can't deserve it. We don't merit it. He just gives it. It's unmerited favor. It's that leaning towards us with a loving and favorable disposition of blessedness that he pours out on, uh, on us. And so this series is just an exploration of that doctrine, the doctrine of grace. Um, I, I, I want to start with a real quick anecdote that I don't know, some of you may be able to relate to. When, um, when my wife and I are, are getting in the car on an especially cold day, uh, we'll, we'll get in the car and then my wife will, will, um, will, will turn on the heat. Okay. So like she just, it's her, like I'm kind of getting us out of gear and driving out, but she's going to get the car heated up. Right. So I don't really notice what she puts the heat on. She just turns the heat on. Some of you might know where this is going already. Okay. So, so she turns the heat on cause it's cold in the car, you know? And, and I'm driving around, uh, uh, along, and after a few minutes, man, I start to realize, like, man, it's, it's kind of hot in here. You know what I mean? Like, and um, I start to feel a little sweat come up under the collar. You know, I'm starting to, my, my hands are getting sweaty on the steering wheel. I'm starting to go, man, it's, it's kind of hot. So I look down, and my wife has the heat all the way up, like, to the point where it doesn't give you the temperature reading anymore. It just says, hi. It just says, like, super, super hot. It just says like scorching, scalding, boiling heat. And so, right. So now, now I'm going, oh, you know, and then is anybody with me on this? Anybody? Know? So then I, we have this debate. We have this debate. We've been having it for 14 years. We love, this is a good debate. I say, I say, hey babe, like you don't have to turn the heat all the way up. Only about a third of the congregation is on my side. I can already tell maybe less. Okay. Um, so I say, you don't have to turn it all the way up because if you just turn it to the right temperature, then it will actually get to that temperature at the same speed at which it would get to that temperature when you put it at, you know, 970 degrees Fahrenheit. And so, um, so you don't really ha have to turn it up that hot. And, and then she says, yeah, but I was cold. And then I go, okay, well, okay, so now we're hot. So now what I'm going to do now, after I've explained all the logic from my perspective about this, then I make the same mistake she does. And I turn the heat off completely. I just turn it off because I'm like, it's so hot in here. We just got to turn the heat off. We can't even have any heat. And if sometimes I really want to make a point, I'll just, I'll roll, I'll crack the windows a little bit. Does anybody, I'll just bring the, right. And just bring a little cold in there. Right. And then I'll be satisfied when we're at about a hypothermic level of cold and our, and our nose hairs are freezing and it's kind of, you can see some steam. And then I'm like, okay, now we're good. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? I thought this metaphor would la land better, but some of you are like, eh. but anyway, we end up on this hot, cold spectrum in, in the car. And, um, and maybe some of you do too, just a handful of you. Um, but in our spiritual life, we do something similar, except it's not, it's not hot and cold. It's, it's a dichotomy in our mindset, in our attitude, in, in our feelings, in the way we interact in the world. And the two ends of the spectrum for us are pride and shame. Pride and shame. All of us experience these two ends of this very 
very intense spectrum of human experience. The experience of pride and the experience of shame. The experience of pride, when we end up over on the pride side of the spectrum, what happens is we begin to see ourselves as superior to others. Uh, You can show that next one where you've got that next one, Caleb. Yeah, when we're over here, right? Um, we, We see ourselves as superior to others. We lack empathy for the weakness and the shortcomings of of other people. We feel entitled and morally superior. We genuinely believe that we have greater value and worth than other people. When pride begins to infect our heart, we begin to feel this sort of hubris, this sort of arrogance towards other people. We believe we don't need help. We believe that we are totally self-sufficient. And when we are prideful, our primary interest is the gratification of ourself. Now, when we are prideful, this undermines our ability to relate to God, our ability to relate to other people, and our ability to relate to ourself. And here's how I can prove it to you. How many of you know somebody that I just described? Like, you know that, some of you guys shot your hands up on that. You know somebody who just has that kind of self-righteous, look down your nose, prideful, arrogant spirit. Does anybody know anybody? Don't name names. Don't write their name down on the connection card. Don't send in a prayer request for them this morning, okay? Um, but, but does anybody know somebody like that, right? When you know somebody like that and they reach out to you to hang out with you, what you do is you find a really good reason to not be available at that time, right? Because nobody wants to be around somebody who's prideful. God doesn't want to be around somebody who's prideful, right? But, but all of us, I'm going to just say all of us, guys, all of us at Shaw, at U-City, online, all of us have experienced that attitude in our life at some point or another. We all have, where we just kind of get a little bit full of ourselves, a little bit full of self-conceit, a little bit full of self-righteousness. You think we're, I think I'm just a little bit better than the next guy, right? We've all experienced that. Now, at the other end of the spectrum, we see that sometimes we end up in the attitude, the heart condition of shame. And the heart condition of shame is just right down at the other, other end of the spectrum. When we have this uh, attitude of shame, we see ourselves as inferior to others. We lack empathy for our own weakness and shortcomings. Do you ever have that experience where it's like you're harsher on yourself than you are on somebody else? Like if somebody else made the mistake that you made, you would forgive them. But when you make that mistake, man, it's just like you just did the worst thing in the world, right? So when we're filled with shame, we lack empathy for our own weakness and shortcomings. We feel condemned and morally inferior. This happens to to a lot of us. We feel condemned and morally inferior. We genuinely believe that we have less value and less worth than other people. We feel helpless, weak, and emotionally vulnerable. This is when we are caught in shame. And see, shame actually undermines our ability to relate to God and other people and ourselves as well. Because when our hearts are filled with shame, we have one of two reactions. We either withdraw 
right? We flee, we hide, we shut it down. We don't answer text messages. Nobody can reach out to us. We say, you know, I'm taking a Facebook hiatus. We like, we just, we, we shut down and we don't let people in when we feel shame. Or the other reaction is we lash out when we feel shame. Because when somebody says something to us that touches on what we believe to be a part of our identity and we feel ashamed about that, we will lash out at people in anger. And so it disrupts our relationships. So both pride and shame are these, are these debilitating attitudes of the human heart that all of us experience from time to time. Debilitating. Pride is the, is, is, is the one that really, I, I think that's probably more on the, uh, you know, we, we come to that early on in life. Um, there's an ancient Greek myth uh, about a, a character named Icarus. Some of you probably remember studying Icarus in school. Um, Icarus's father um, made a set of wings out of feathers and wax so that they could fly uh, out of the island of Crete and escape. And, um, and his father told him, he said, Icarus, um, be careful not to fly too high. Just be careful not to fly too close to the sun. But Icarus, in his pride, and his arrogance and his hubris, he, he kind of got full of himself and he kept flying higher and higher and higher. And in the, in the, in the mythology, in the story, the, the sun melted the wax on his wings and the feathers began to fall off. And Icarus plunged and crashed into the waves and drowned uh, in the sea. And it's a story about what happens to us over and over as, as humans when we, when we become prideful. You see, that's the interesting thing about pride and shame. They're actually connected. They're actually connected in this very almost causal way. Because what happens is a lot of times when we start to experience pride, then we have a fall and then we experience shame. Now, some of us may say, well, okay, let's, let's do like we did on the hot-cold debate, right? Let's find ourselves somewhere in the middle. Let's just put ourselves on the middle of that spectrum, right? Well, in the hot-cold debate, that's a good res resolution. You find a temperature that works for both people, and then you kind of just keep it right there, right? But in the shame-pride discussion, in this dichotomy, there is no good place on this continuum, because if you're in the middle, that means you're sometimes prideful and you're sometimes ashamed. Sometimes you walk around full of overconfidence, and then sometimes you walk around feeling condemned, right? So, so there's not a good place on the spectrum of the pride-shame continuum. So the question then becomes for each one of us, how do we get off of this? How do we stop experiencing over and over these moments in our life of, of self-righteous pride that are often followed by a pretty hard hit, a pretty hard crash into the sea, pretty hard uh, a tumble down from our, our perch? How do we get out of that. So I want to get to that answer in just a moment. But before we get to the idea of how to get off of it, I want to talk for a moment about how we got on this spectrum. How did we get on this continuum of pride and shame? So if you're taking notes, write this down. Pride is the natural state of the human heart. Pride is the natural state of the human heart. And I'm going to explain this to you. Um, when, you know, we, we have four children. And none of them, the, the, they all had a pretty, one of their very first words was the word mine. Mine. Th those of you who have ever had a child, you know that that, after like a cup, like mama, dada, no, right, <laughs> mine. They don't learn the word ours, ours, until they're like 
40, in their late 40s, all right, mid, mid late 40s, right? Right? Because mine is, is the natural state of, of our heart. We just, we automatically want mine, right? We automatically turn our interest and our focus on ourselves. And we automatically, even as little children, we, we overestimate our own abilities. And I'll, I'll, I'll tell you what I mean. Um, several years ago, when my son Augustine was, uh, I think he was about four years old, um, he and I went to the YMCA to go swimming. Now, I knew that he had been taking some lessons, um, but I, he had just started lessons, and I knew that he didn't know how to swim. So he and I go to the YMCA down in Brentwood, and we, we get in the, in the pool, and, we're, and I'm in the pool, and he's actually on the side, and um, I'm waiting for him to, to get in, and he starts to come towards the pool, and I say, oh, hey, Gustin, you got to put your little uh, floaty on, you know, your little puddle jumper or whatever. you got to button, you got to get your little floaty so that you can get in the water. And Augustine comes over to the edge of the pool, and he goes, Dad, I can swim. And I'm in the water, and I go, no, you can't swim. You can't swim. I know you can't swim. Like, you don't know how to swim. I've never heard anybody say you know how to swim. Now, I haven't been with you every day, all day, but I'm pretty sure you can't swim. And he goes, Dad, yes, I can swim. And now he's like indignant at me, like I'm an idiot, right? Yeah, I can, Dad. I can swim. And he's four. And I, like, I had that moment where I'm like, well, maybe he can swim. I don't, you know, I really did because he had been taking lessons and nobody had you know, I hadn't gotten a certificate or anything. So I thought, well, maybe, I don't know how this works, you know, like, so I said, you can? And he goes, yes. And I'm like, oh, okay, well, I didn't know that. Okay, great. And he goes, watch. So I'm standing in the pool, and I'm about five feet of water, and he's standing on the edge, and he goes, and he jumps into the pool, and he immediately just rockets to the bottom of the pool. I mean, not flubbering around, not gasping, I'm just like a stone to the bottom of the pool. And I'm like kind of looking down going, is he going to bounce up? What's going to happen? But he doesn't bounce up. He's just, at the, he's just down there. So I'm like, what in the world? So I go down and I get him and gasping, sputtering and whatever. I go, you can't swim. And he goes, oh, I, I thought I could swim. I don't know. I thought I could swim. Right? Like, man, geez, go get your puddle jumper on, dude. What's the matter with you? This is us, right? This is the state of humanity. God is saying, you need me. You can't do this on your own. You're not going to make it on your own. You're going to come crashing into the water and, and we're going, I got this. I got this. I don't need you. I got this, God. And God is saying, no, you don't have this, right? Because our hearts are oriented towards self, towards pride, towards hubris, towards, towards we got this, right? We actually see this in the description in Genesis of our primordial ancestors, Adam and Eve. We see this, this idea of, that, that is describing the, the, the state of the heart of humanity. When we look at the book of Genesis, um, chap, chapter, I believe it's chapter 3, it says this. Um, the serpent said to the woman, this is a great, you should go back and read Genesis. The serpent said to the woman, said, for God knows that when you eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, your eyes will be opened. And then look at the temptation. And you will be like God. That's the first temptation. You will be like God. And there, there's something inherent in our heart that goes, oh, okay. Right? I can be like God. God, in fact, when you, when you look at the scriptures that describe the fall of, of, of Lucifer, 
uh, of, of Satan. You see these scriptures that, that say that he wanted to make his throne above the throne of God. Right? It was pride. It was, that's the original sin. That's the original state of our heart. We're tempted by this desire to say, I don't need God. I just need myself. I'm as good as God. I make my own rules. I can do it on my own. I don't need your help. And I, I certainly don't need to bow in obeisance or humility before some huge you know, being. I've got this. But we also know that every story that begins with pride ends with shame. Every story that begins with pride ends with shame. Genesis 3, 9, go down a few verses. It says, the Lord God called to the man, where are you? Remember, they ate the fruit, and then God says, where are you? The man answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Shame. The temptation is pride. Be like God. And when we do that, when we, when we acquiesce to that pride, then we end up experiencing shame. I was in the garden, and I, I knew I was naked, and I hid. In fact, God says to him, how did you know you were naked? Well, where did the shame come from, right? It came from the pride. There's this connection. There's this interaction between pride that always leads to shame. We see this throughout the scripture. When you look at Saul, uh, the king, king Saul, he, he became filled with pride, and then his reign ended in shame. David became full of pride and then brought shame upon himself and his family. Samson was full of pride, remember? And then he ended in shame. Haman, full of pride, ended in shame. Jezebel, full of pride, ended in shame. You see this recurring theme over and over and over in the scripture because it describes our experience. It describes the universal human experience of our heart wants to, 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 to expand beyond what we really are and then we end up falling in shame. Three scriptures really quick where the Bible just kind of like puts a fine point on it. Proverbs 16, 18. Pride goes before destruction. A haughty spirit comes before a fall. Proverbs eleven two. When pride comes, then comes disgrace. Proverbs 26, 12. Do you see a person who is wise in their own eyes? There's more hope for a fool than them. So there's this, there's this connection between pride and shame. C.S. Lewis writes this in Mere Christianity. He says, there is one vice of which no man in the world is free, which everyone in the world loathes or hates when we see it in someone else and of which hardly any people except Christians ever imagine that they are guilty of themselves. There is no fault which makes a man more unpopular and no fault which we are more unconscious of in ourselves. That's the problem with pride. Pride blinds you to pride. It is so tricky. Shame, you know when you're experiencing it because you just feel horrible. But when you're proud, one of the things that pride says is you're not prideful, right? Pride says, I'm humble. That's what pride says. So, so he says, uh, uh, there's no fault which we are more unconscious of in ourselves. The vice I am talking about, he says, is pride. As long as you are proud, you cannot know God. A proud man is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you are looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. Pride leads to shame. I'll give you one more quote. This is from Charles Spurgeon. He wrote, Pride is so natural to fallen man that it springs up in his heart like weeds in a well-watered garden. 
Its every touch is evil. You may hunt down this fox and think you have destroyed it, and lo, your very exultation is pride. Your very celebration of having killed pride is prideful itself. None have more pride than those who dream that they have none. Oh, somebody should write that down. Somebody should tweet that one. Give Charles Spurgeon the the credit on that one. None have more pride than those who dream they have none. Pride is a sin with a thousand lives that seems impossible to kill. So if we are stuck in this nature of pride, right? If we have this baked into our human nature and we just, it's just part of the fallen condition of humanity. It's part of the original sin. It's part of the fall. It's part of our broken, uh, fallen heart. And then it ultimately leads us to great, uh, to, to disgrace and shame. How do we get out of it? How do we get out of it? So today, and for just the next few minutes, I'm going to, I'm going to focus on one interaction that Jesus had in the next week. I'm going to focus on a different interaction that Jesus had with people who were experiencing the ends of the spectrum. I'm going to give you um, briefly, um, I want to unpack this story briefly from John chapter 8. It's a story that all of you know. You've heard this story. I'm going to start with John 8 verse 2. It says, at dawn, Jesus appeared again in the temple courts where all the people were gathered around him. And he sat down to teach them. So Jesus was getting ready. He was in the temple. He's getting ready to preach and teach to everybody. He sits down. People are gathered around to hear what he has to say. And it says, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group. And they said to Jesus, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. Now, just get the picture here for a minute. Jesus is getting ready to expound on the scripture. There's a group of people gathered around him. And these guys bring this woman in. They make her stand in front of everyone. And they go, what are you going to do about her? What are you going to do about her? They say, the law of Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? Now, then, then the, the writer gives us a clue as to what they're actually doing. He says, they were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. What they mean by that is, what they wanted him to do is like, they, they gave him an impossible situation. Because if Jesus says, no, don't stone her, then they go, oh, you don't believe in the law of Moses. Because the law of Moses said you got to stone people who are caught in adultery, right? But if he says, stone her, then they go, oh my gosh, the, the law says we should have mercy. I can't believe that you're going to be so harsh. And then people will turn against him. So any way you go, you're caught, you're trapped, Right? That's what, they, that's what they're trying to do. Imagine the pride, the self-righteousness, the arrogance, the hubris of the self-conceit of this group of people who interfere with Jesus' teaching to use a, a, a live woman who has been caught in adultery, who's probably filled with shame already, as a prop for what they're trying to trap Jesus in this, in this, this spiritual debate. They have zero care for her soul. They don't care at all for what happens to her spirit. All they want to do is win the fight. All they want to do is win the argument. They're so full of pride, they don't even have an ounce of empathy for this person. They just want to win. And the scripture is so fascinating because it says that Jesus, he heard what they said, and he took a moment, and then it says he knelt down, and he began to draw in the dirt. Now, people speculate all the time, what was he drawing in the dirt? There's no answer to this, right? I, the, the, the people speculate, commentators, preachers, everybody. I like to think, this is just my personal like, I like to think that he was writing down their specific sin, like, um, Mike, you stole $50 from the treasury <laughs> yesterday. And then like draw a little arrow over to Mike the Pharisee over there. Bob, 
you were flirting with your wife's best friend, Marina. Arrow to Bob the Pharisee, right? I just feel like he was, I don't, I don't know, this is just pure speculation. But he's doing something like that. Um, and then he stands up after writing whatever he wrote in the sand, and he, and he says one of the most genius lines. I'll just, I'll just read it out. He says one of the most genius lines in the whole Bible. He says, he who is without sin among you, uh, why don't you throw the first stone? And what's so fascinating about this, I'm not going to get into the whole story, but what's so fascinating, is that that's all he says, right? And one by one, you start to hear, thump, stones falling on the ground, right? And then it says, from the oldest to the youngest, they just walked away. They didn't respond. They didn't, yeah, but. They didn't, right? Because they were busted. Because they were busted in their pride. Write this down if you're taking notes. The cure for pride begins with the full recognition of our failures. The full recognition of our failures. The full recognition of our failures. Now, this is going to cause some of you to just kind of already tighten up because even to think about recognizing the fullness of your failures immediately begins to flood you with shame. But we're going to relieve that in just a moment, okay? The cure to pride is the full recognition of your failures. My, my grandpa, Rome, um, was like one of the old school kind of, he was of the generation where like if you made a mistake, you know, you didn't really, you just kind of didn't really mention it. You know what I mean? Uh, he, he, <laughs> he was an awesome guy. He was a man of God and I loved him and I adored him and he was incredible. Um, he was like an old school preacher, Pentecostal preacher, planted a church right here in New City in 1948, right at Sutter and Etzel, right there. Uh, grew, you know, lived in Wellston. Um, and just, he's just one of these guys that he was a boxer. He was a bus mechanic. He was like a tough guy, you know? And I just, I, I loved hanging out with him when I was a kid because back in those days, the preachers always drove preacher cars. Does anybody know about a preacher car? Okay. That's a different generation. But um, preacher cars, like the preachers would drive like the old timey sedan deville cadillacs you know with the shiny anyway um so i'd get in the car with him i just felt cool i was like man me and grandpa are just rolling and we would just we would just hang out together and um but he was famous in fact the whole family knows this about him he was famous that for like if he made a wrong turn which apparently he kind of did relatively often like kind of went the wrong direction and to be fair we didn't have google maps back then you know we didn't have all that so but he would make a wrong turn and then you would start to notice, like, this doesn't look like where we were supposed to go, right? But Grandpa wouldn't go, whoops, made a wrong turn. No, no. He would go like this. this is, he was classic. This is what he would do. He'd go, kids, I just wanted you to um, see the um, houses in this neighborhood. It's a new, actually, it's an old kind of uh, house, but it's very beautiful, and uh, the trees are fantastic. But I just wanted you guys to get, have a look at this just to kind of see, right? And we're, like, sitting there going, no. We're in the wrong neighborhood. Like, this is not the right place. You're just saying that, right? That was his vibe, right? I still, now I do that with my kids, and I just love it. If I make a wrong turn, which I do, I do the exact same thing. I go, actually, kids, I just wanted you to see this nice QT over here. I don't think we've ever been into that particular <laughs> gas station. So there it is. If you ever need a hot dog when you're older, you can go there. So, like, you know, 
In fact, there was one, one story about him that he was really famous for. There was a conference, like a church conference. I think it was in Oklahoma. And he was in, in, responsible for driving everybody home. There's like four or five people in the car, in the big preacher car. And he was driving them home. And so he's supposed to be leaving like Oklahoma City or something, come, coming back to St. Louis. He's driving. And um, at one point, after like, you know, several hours of the drive back to St. Louis, they see a sign that says, Mexico, 100 miles. <laughs> and apparently, it's true. It's an absolutely true story. Apparently, he like pulled off the highway and said, I think I'm just going to get some gas. Got some gas and then just drove, turned around, drove the other way. Nobody mentioned it. It was just like, okay. It's when you see the border, people. Um, that's that's kind of what we do with our sin, right? When we sin, right, one of the things that we do is we will do almost anything rather than confront it. We really will. We will cover, we'll justify, we'll rationalize, we'll, we'll get mad, we'll strike out, we'll hide. We will do almost anything except confront that sin, that failure, straight on. Because it's painful to do so. Because it brings shame to do so. Now, the woman in the story had no choice. Her sin was being exposed for her. They brought her in front of everybody, stood her up in front of everybody and said, she has sinned. Imagine the mortification, the public shame that she is experiencing in that moment, right? The other guys, they were full of pride. And Jesus worked on their pride by, by confronting their failures. This woman's failure was being fully exposed in front of everybody. So how is he going to address her shame? The scripture says this. It says, Jesus was left alone and the woman was standing in the midst. So it's, now it's just Jesus and and her. When Jesus had raised himself up from the ground where he'd been drawing, and he saw no one but the woman, he said to her, woman, where are your accusers? Has nobody condemned you? He said. She looks around and she says, no one, Lord. And then Jesus says to her, neither do I condemn you. Now go and sin no more. I want you to look at the way he confronts shame. He confronts shame with grace. He says, I don't condemn you. Now go and sin no more. You got to be really careful right here in the middle, okay? Because grace is not a compromise. Grace doesn't say sin isn't sin. It doesn't do that. Grace also does not condemn you. So it's neither condemnation nor compromise. It says sin looks a grace looks sin in the face, calls it what it is. Go and sin no more, and you are not condemned. Grace says, I'm going to walk right down the path of, of, of guiding you and leading you. I'm not going to condemn you. I'm not going to forsake you. I'm not going to turn my back on you. I'm going to call you to the higher version of yourself through grace. That's, that's how Jesus hand. So, so if you're taking notes, write down this. The cure for shame begins with the full recognition of God's grace. Right? The cure for pride begins when we start to go, oh, I'm a sinner. The cure for grace begins when we go, or the, the cure for, for shame begins to happen when we go, oh my God, grace, God's grace is sufficient for me. He's not going to condemn me. He doesn't want me to sin, but he's not going to condemn me. He wants to give me, he wants to free me. He wants to liberate me. The cure for shame begins with full recognition of God's grace. When I'm about to close in just a minute. When I first became a, a follower of Jesus, um, I was reading, 
I was in my apartment. I was reading a book, Mere Christianity. Kind of talked about this uh, before, but I'm reading the, this book, Mere Christianity. And my, my conversion happened in sort of three steps. My first step was for the first time in my life at my, I was like 32, 33. Um, for the very first time in my life, I know you think I'm only 34 now. I know, I know what you're, I know you're trying to do the math. Um, for the first time in my life, I went, I believe in Jesus. I believe that Jesus died, was buried, and rose from the dead. I, I, I had a moment where I had a conversion experience, where I, where I really put my faith in Jesus, and I believed in Jesus, that, that he was the son of God, that he is the son of God, and that he's my Lord, and that he, would die, and that he died, was buried, he rose and ascended to heaven. I, that was my first thought. That was the first move. The second was like almost a wave of shame. Like, oh my God, if, if Jesus, if the Bible is true and Jesus is real, and I've been living the way I've been living, then I'm so out of line with God's path for my life that for a moment, it just like a flo- like my face got hot. Like, oh wow, I can't, like how am I, like overwhelming shame for just a moment. And then the third thought came, which is the beautiful thought. This, the, the, the reality of grace hit me. And suddenly I, I like, I remembered the stories and the sayings of the followers of Jesus that had raised me who said, as far as the East is from the West, that's how far your sin is from God. Though your sins be red as scarlet, they have been washed as white as snow. When you put your faith in Jesus, your sins are washed by the blood of the Lamb. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now... So the... So after this moment of like, oh my God, I'm a sinner, this wave of grace came in. And that wave of grace has informed every day of my life since that moment to the moment I'm standing here right now. And when I am tempted by pride, then I am faced full on with the recognition of my failures. But they don't drive me into shame because I'm filled with the grace of God. I'm filled with the hope and the love and the grace of Jesus who pours it out on us. If you want to see it in a visual representation, this is how I see it. Pride and shame, these two ends of the spectrum, are shattered by the love and the grace of God that is being poured out on you and me today. Jesus knew this pride-shame spectrum better than anyone better than anyone when Jesus was about to start his public ministry scripture says that the devil tempted him Luke 4 says this the devil led Jesus up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world and the devil said to Jesus I will give you all their authority I will give you all of their splendor. It has been given to me and I can give it to anyone I want. If you worship me, it will be yours. What is he tempting Jesus with? Pride. Pride. Just worship me and I'll give you everything you want. You don't have to suffer. You don't have to struggle. You don't have to go through anything. I'm going to give you everything you want. This is the first temptation. This is the very basic part of who we are as human beings. 
you don't need you don't need anything you can jump right into the pool in fact as he says jump off of this building and God will not let you hurt your foot right he uses a scripture out of context that's what he's saying he's like you got this Jesus fortunately rejected that offer Unlike the first Adam, Jesus, the second Adam, said, no thanks, I'm not going to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I'm not going to try to, I'm not going to try to elevate myself. And then listen how his career ends. This is from Isaiah 53. It says, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. This is a description of shame. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs. He has carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him and by his stripes we are healed all like all like sheep all we like sheep have gone astray all of us have have been filled with pride and hubris and self-conceit we've all like sheep gone astray we have turned everyone to his own way pride we've all done it we've turned away from him And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. You know what iniquity means? It's the shame. It's the sin. It's the failures and the weakness and the shortcoming. And God has laid that upon his shoulders. What the scripture is teaching us is this. This is what grace looks like. Grace looks like this. Jesus, the one who was tempted in every way like we are, but who never sinned, takes all of that shame from you and from me puts it on his shoulders and carries it to a cross and all of his righteousness and all of his perfection all of his beauty all of his splendor all of his majesty and all of his glory he pours out on you it's a it's a i'm taking your sin and i'm giving you all of the majesty and the glory and the grace that's what grace is so the question that i'm going to leave you with how do I experience that? Now, some of you are like, man, I've been a Christian a hundred years. I don't, need, I don't need this sermon. This sermon is for new people. Well, maybe you're standing there. Maybe some people are standing here ashamed like the woman caught in adultery. But maybe some of us are standing here with rocks in our hands. Right? We don't need this because we're already righteous. But what we're really doing is standing here blind to our own pride not even realizing that we're the exact people that God is trying to reach. It's dangerous. It's, more, it's a lot less dangerous to be just a straight up, full on, nasty sinner. It's, that's less dangerous than being somebody who is so full of your own righteousness that you think you've got this covered and squared away. Right? And God is saying, I, I, I want both y'all. I want everybody in grace. How do we do it? Last, quick, last one. Jesus observes two men in the temple. One is a Pharisee, righteous, holy, stand-up guy, right? Tithes, gives, follows all the law, commandments. And the other one is a tax collector, just 
a guy who is working with the Roman government, cheating his people, just a total, just one of those guys, just like a bad guy. It's a horrible guy. And they both pray in the temple. And the first one says, Father, thank you so much. I am not like that guy. Oh, not a tax collector, not a robber, not a cheat, not a liar, not a thief. I give, I am righteous. I do everything the right way. Thank you so much that I am who I am. Amen. And he leaves. The tax collector goes, Lord, have mercy upon me, a sinner. That's the whole prayer. Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Have mercy on me. I'm a sinner, right? And Jesus says, guess which one is justified? Guess which one leaves there with the righteousness of God poured out upon him? Guess which one leaves there with the blessing and the favor and the disposition of love and grace poured upon him? It's not the one who had it all squared away. It's the one who said, I am a sinner. So here's what I want us to do today as we close. I want us all, all of us to pray that prayer. I want us to pray the prayer of, Lord, have mercy upon me, a sinner. But I don't want to end there. I want to end with, Lord, thank you for your grace. Lord, thank you for your grace. So would you just take a moment with me now, both campuses, online, everyone, just bow your heads and let's, let, I'm going to pray and then you just pray in your heart, okay? Heavenly Father, we come before you thankful for your grace. We are not righteous on our own. We are not holy on our own. Lord, have mercy on us, sinners. Lord Jesus, have mercy upon us. We are not worthy of your love, your blessing, your favor, and your grace. But we receive it. And we thank you for it. Father, I thank you right now for the grace that you have poured out upon me and my family. I thank you for the grace that you have poured out upon every single person in the hearing of my voice right now who has received your grace. I pray that each and every one of us, whether we are brand new to the faith or whether we have been walking in the Christian faith for a long time, I pray that each and every one of us would be filled with the presence of God, filled with the Spirit, filled with the outpouring of grace, filled with the joy of the Holy Spirit, filled with the power of your word, that your, that your, that your life would be a light to us and that we might be a light to others, Lord God, because we are, we are just overflowing with the grace and the love, the mercy and the peace that comes to those who open their hearts and receive you. Father, we praise you for this. We honor you. We thank you and we love you. In Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said, amen, amen. I want to close by inviting us to worship together in a few different ways. Um, one of the ways that you may need to uh, worship today is just letting us know that you are making that commitment to follow Jesus. If you are making that commitment and you're saying, God, I want your grace in my life, let us know. There's a, there's a QR code. It's there on the screen. It's on the back of your uh, chair. Just scan that and then let us know. There's a connection card there. Just let us know. We'll come alongside of you, pray with you, and help walk you down the path that God wants you to walk down. If you're here today and you want to start your uh, Beyond Giving, today is the first day that we're actually launching it. Um, you can give online. You can 
give in the, uh, with the envelopes there. You can, however you want to do it, be a part of uh, partnering with what God is doing and spreading this gospel of grace around the world. You can do that today. You can do that on the QR code or you can do that um, online, however you want to give. But we invite you to do that. If you need prayer today, we're going to have some prayer team members in the side auditorium. Go over there and just let them pray with you. If you just want to, the easiest prayer is, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Thank you for your grace. You can go pray with them. If you want to take communion, we'll have communion available to you in the side auditorium. You can take communion, celebrate the sacrifice that Jesus made for you. His body was broken and his blood was spilled that you might have life and that more abundantly. Would you stand with me now as we close? I want to invite you now to open your hearts. Open your hearts, open your mouths, open your voices, and let's sing together as we worship God with one more song.